The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'll speak with analyst Michael Ballinger about Gold Corp's purchase of Kamenak Gold in the Yukon and how this may affect neighboring sponsor, Stakeholder Gold. Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech has some very encouraging news about the company's advanced research regarding colorectal and lung cancers. And we're very pleased to have an exclusive interview with auto racing legend Al Unser Sr. with Car Kicks host Bob Lang. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much, Ellis. Now, you said there was going to be news flow this spring, the summer this year, and uh, Oncolytics Biotech has not disappointed. What's going on now? Well, there's been preliminary results announced in advance of ASCO, which is our big spring cancer meeting that's held every year, both in lung cancer and in colorectal cancer. And the colorectal cancer data in particular is very exciting and really sets the direction for us going forward in the near term. Let's review colorectal cancer. It's not specific to men or women. Anyone can get it, and it's been tough to treat. Now, this is going to change in your eyes? I believe so. I mean, colorectal cancer is a very serious cancer. And like many other cancers, if it's detected early, when it's still dislocalized in the colorectal range, then it's usually curable or at least treatable and usually by surgery or a combination of surgery or radiation. And I mean, it's just imagine a tube that's your colon and they just top out a piece on either side of the tumor and sew the ends back together like you would your garden hose if it had a leak. And that usually works. But it's when it spreads beyond that and it usually goes to places like the liver first and sometimes into the lymph nodes. That's when it transitions from being treatable to being deadly then it is deadly. I mean, the long-term survival rates for colorectal cancer are still not very good. And most to all the patients, depending on where you are, when you're in that condition, will end up dying. I mean, there, there needs to be improvement. Now, there has been improvement in recent years. There's been some new drug combinations introduced, and I'll put a plug in for one of my colleague companies. Introduction of Avast and into the treatment of colorectal cancer has really helped out. But there's still a lot of room for improvement. And so what we've been focusing on is looking to see if there's signs that realize in our product actually works on the metastatic lesions, because that's the ones that kill patients. And we've had two now randomized clinical studies, so studies 
where there's a control group that gets the standard of care versus the test group, which gets the standard of care plus real license, uh, that have indicated that we're actually seeing improved responses in the metastatic lesions that go to the liver. And uh, the first was in a head and neck study that we ran several years ago, and that was the first indication that we had in a randomized study that real license actually works really well in metastatic lesions. And we had a statistically significant outcome in reducing metastatic lesions primarily in the liver. We've seen the same thing in this clinical study with colorectal cancer. And what we spotted was that in patients that had metastatic liver lesions, that we had a statistically significant improvement in both the response rate and the degree of shrinkage. That's quite remarkable. And so what we are planning on doing is now moving ahead with a follow-on study to confirm that, and that takes us right up to the end of the product development cycle. So it's extremely positive for us and positive for the patients involved, of course, and hopefully it will be positive in the end for our shareholders. When might we see more news in this particular study? We're still waiting for patients to finish, which is a nice euphemism for more patients unfortunately dying so you can do the final statistics and that relates to the other very interesting thing that we saw in this study is that there was for the first time in a clinical study we actually saw gender differences in response rates the men we saw about a 10% increase in response rate which if you run a big enough study would give you statistics that would be manageable but the women just under tripled and I said that we're tripled. I don't get to say that very often, the response rate. So we took the response rate from you know the low 20s of percent, so partial responses are better, and took it up into the 60s. I've never seen that before, and then particularly in colorectal cancer. That presumably will show some, hopefully, lifespan benefit in the women. And there's certainly a trend for that now, but not enough patients have died. So the data analysis, there was still 60-some percent of the patients alive. So it's still early days in looking at that particular outcome. But very exciting just to see a trend, and we're hoping that over time that trend will firm up and we'll actually be able to say we're increasing lifespan in in women and with colorectal cancer. Having a gender-specific therapeutic is really quite remarkable. It's really quite uncommon and we're, I think, hopefully everybody can tell pretty excited about that possibility. Well, it is certainly fantastic news and a lot of potential for women and, of course, men who have been afflicted with that. Let's get back to lung cancer and it's been my experience over the course of my lifetime that you don't always need to be a smoker to catch that particular disease. Is there any data on what causes lung cancer that you're aware of? Well, most lung cancers are caused by either first-hand exposure to smoke, you smoke or secondhand exposure to smoke, you know, being around people that smoke. But there is a small percentage of patients who get lung cancer without either of those risk factors. And honestly, we really don't know why. The assumption is there's some sort of environmental trigger, and usually the patients have genetics that predispose them to having cancer anyway. And so it's probably a combination of those two, but nobody's really established it. I mean, there's some very specific environmental things that cause cancer, like exposure to asbestos can cause cancer and and a few things like that, but it's mostly smoking. Is there any data on smoking cigarettes per se that would necessarily cause other kinds of cancer? in the body? Smoking causes a distressingly large number of cancers in the body. It's probably the single biggest thing that as a society we could do would be to quit smoking to prevent cancer. Uh, The second would be diet and the third would be exercise. I mean, if everybody didn't smoke, ate a balanced diet, not just one thing or the other, and we're in good shape, we'd probably cut our cancer rates by at least half maybe two-thirds. That's a pretty big number. But smoking, and pretty much anywhere where the smoking affects you is where you get the cancer. So most oral cancers are caused by smoking. Most head and neck cancers are caused by smoking. Lung, of course. But then you start getting into places you don't normally think of, like you know bladder cancer. Most bladder cancers are probably due to smoking. But when you think about it, where's all those toxins getting excreted? They're coming out in your urine, and where does your urine get pooled? Well, it's in your bladder, so that's the case. So, And there's a few other kind of more minor cancers, but those are the major 
major ones. But that's a big percentage of cancers. I mean, head and neck cancer is the third most common cancer. Lung cancer is arguably, you know, the second. And we don't know about the risk factors and some other things. I mean, probably pancreatic cancers or some are induced by smoking. Probably some colorectal cancers. All of a sudden, we're starting to talk about most of the cancers people know about, right? So it's, it's a really a serious thing. And certainly, you know, my family, I mean, both my mom and my uncle both died of directly of easily traceable to smoking-related cancers. It's just around and it's just there. There's been many people that have had lung cancer and they have died and they may not have been exposed to cigarettes or cigarette smoking for a good 20 years or more, but yet somehow it caught up with them later in life. Is there anything we can say to young people that feel fearless and resilient to pretty much anything that will translate into something that will shock them into uh, stopping smoking or not doing it if they're thinking of doing it? Well, if they're already smoking, I mean, the risk factor really drops down, depending on who you talk to, really drops down either between five or 10 years of quitting smoking. You're pretty much back to baseline. I mean, there are cases, as you just mentioned, that people still get cancer from smoking after that. But pretty much most of your risk is gone if you quit and you make it through the next five or 10 years. It's really tough to tell somebody who thinks they're immortal. Yeah, most kids think they're immortal. I did. I mean, I didn't think anything could happen to me. It's just a miracle of some sorts that I made it through my teen years. When you look back, you go, whoa, that's not a very good thing. But you know, I did, and here I am. But it's really hard to tell somebody who has that mindset. And if we all think about it, we all did pretty much. You know, something that may not cause a problem for you for 20, 30, 40, 50 years is a big deal. I mean, it's really hard not to do that. And showing pictures of, you know, 70-year-olds with lung cancer doesn't really help much. But when you see celebrities, some of those celebrity ads that people have done when they're dying and they do, but by the time you've seen this ad, I've already died of lung cancer, those kind of things matter. And those things actually have had positive impacts. It's like the same thing they did with, I mean, it's not cancer, but those commercials where they showed the effects on your appearance of using meth, that had more impact than talking about addiction and all the health risks. The right type of advertising can really make a difference. I think when actor Leonard Nimoy was dying, he issued that sort of proclamation against smoking that it had been a factor in his death. Yeah, and, and that one being a lifelong Leonard Nimoy and Spock fan, it moved me, and I, you know, I don't smoke. I mean, I saw that sequence. When people mean something to you as a celebrity, it has an impact. I mean, it really does. So it's too bad, you know, David Bowie couldn't have done one of those because that would have had an impact on a different population. And I mean, you can just go through the list of people that died of things. You know, when Patrick Swayze died of pancreatic cancer, he did a little sequence, if I remember correctly, before he died. And I mean, those things really matter to people because those people are, are real to all of us. And they're real to millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people. So what is the basis of your excitement this week? Because you seem very amped up. When you look at what kills cancer patients, I think that explains why I'm amped up. I mean, most primary cancers, so like cancer of the pancreas, cancer of the colon, cancer of the lung, aren't what kill cancer patients. What kills cancer patients is when that spreads beyond that primary organ site into other regions. We call it metastasis. The two metastatic sites that kill most patients are brain cancer metastasis and liver metastasis. And this is the second time in a randomized clinical study we've actually seen liver metastasis having a lot of benefit by treating real license. Last year, we actually saw for the first time brain metastasis having the first time impact with real license. And so what you've got in is an agent here that actually might address both of the major reasons that people die. And that 
honestly, I thought I'd never be able to say that out loud, but you know, we'll have to prove it up in further studies and that, but it's, it's there, you can see it, and, and that's why I'm excited. That is truly why I'm excited. Well, we're excited too, and we're very pleased to have you as a sponsor of this particular program. We're getting the word out to many individuals that have had a direct experience or an indirect experience with cancer, and there's also a potential investment opportunity with Oncolytics Biotech. Brad, thank you again for joining me today on the program. Well, thank you very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Join me now for a conversation with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.V and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Originally trained during the inflationary 1970s, Michael Ballinger is a graduate of St. Louis University where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Finance and a Bachelor of Art in Marketing before completing postgraduate work at the Wharton School of Finance. With more than 30 years of experience as a junior mining and exploration specialist, as well as a solid background in corporate finance, Ballinger's adherence to the concept of hard assets allows him to focus the practice on selecting opportunities in the global resource sector, with emphasis on the precious metals exploration and development sector. Ballinger takes great pleasure in visiting mineral properties around the globe in the never-ending hunt for early-stage opportunities. Mike, welcome back to the program. I've been reading your updates on the internet, as I'm sure all of your subscribers have been doing, and you made a very good point a few days ago. Stakeholder was at one time a neighbor of Kamenak. That is no longer the case. The neighbor is now Gold Corp. Let's talk about that. Arguably... In, in a broad perspective, it, it really was a defining moment for the, this very, very, very young bull market that we've uh, found ourselves in here in the uh, second quarter of 2016. On a big picture basis, the fact that Gold Corp stepped up and spent half a billion dollars on a project that is yet to be put into production where there's still construction costs and all the usual startup risks associated with it, that's a statement and a half as far as how it relates to the junior mining sector. It's no secret I've been a, a huge fan of, of Kamenak for going on five, six years now. I've owned it, I've traded it, but I've never varied one iota in the economic viability of that project. You find that kind of grade. I mean, they're mining in oxide heat leach operations, they mine 0.5 gram per ton material. And Kamenak's grade is well north of a gram. In fact, it averages, I think, one and a half. And that is gonna be a very robust project. It will be a very profitable mine. It obviously speaks well to take to the uh, exploration program coming up in two weeks that Stakeholder Gold is going to be embarking upon with uh, Sean Ryan and Ground Truth at the helm. That has me excited. Uh, I'm seeing deals getting done. Independence took on a project that I was familiar with called Rose Butte, north of Golden Saddle. Back in, in the early part of last year, I said that what I felt would probably happen was that we would have an event, probably a takeover of Kamenak, and that it would create a revisitation of the Klondike gold rush that we experienced back in uh, in 2009, 2010. And that appears to be what's going on right now. So needless to say, it was a very welcome event. 
Did I hear you correctly when you said that Sean Ryan's going to be leading the drilling? Ground Truth and Sean are going to be, uh, yes. In fact, I just had an email today from one of the guys in his office welcoming us to the fold and giving us our startup date of uh, approximately June the 10th. They've just hired a new geologist. The gentleman's name is Jody Gibson, senior geologist with Ground Truth. Jody Gibson is generally credited with being responsible for the discoveries of the Golden Saddle underworld, uh, then Kinross deposit in the white gold area, and also the QV discovery by Comstock. So we've got a real first-rate team in there, and as we've talked about to we're blue in the face, the fact that Sean, on a property that he didn't even stake, he joined our team last year based on his knowledge and his proximity by way of the Black Fox property to the Ballarat. So if you really go back and look at this thing, we now have a major mining company's road going through the eastern portion of our property. The Gold Corp Road, it was the Kamenak Road, it's going right through the valley that's on the eastern part of our boundary, on our property, pardon me. If you reverse engineer that, it means that we will have 12 month a year access to the Ballarat project. You know, no more choppers coming in for $15,000 a pop. We're gonna have road access. And that, from an economics standpoint, the project economics for, if we have, a discovery on that property and Sean is sure convinced we're going to have one has just leaped onto the front stage thanks to our friends at Goldcorp. So you think the word is getting out there in the market with regard to stakeholder as an investment opportunity as of late. We've seen some trading that perhaps we haven't seen in a, about a year or so. And in, in not just stakeholders. It's really funny how bull markets evolved. In February when luckily for us we were very well positioned in December looking for a rally a rally underlined bold exclamation mark a rally in January, February. January 19th when the Huey hit its bear market low at 99 and change, and my knees were starting to knock together. I was getting a little bit rattled thinking I might have been wrong. But luckily, away it went, and in about March, after the some of the seniors had, had really good moves, I remember listening to the commentary on the, on the blogospheres and everybody said that you know you'd better stick to quality you better stick to producers only because the retail investor and the institutional investors not going back those penny dreadful exploration companies and i just watched a company called west red lake gold mines that's drilling a property 10 kilometers from gold corpus mine to the west i just saw it go from three cents to 30 cents in less than two months here's a company that's got a 30 million plus market cap and they have yet to have a major discovery so that's great news for everybody for the whole industry for the space it's great news for the juniors who have been suffering for so long everybody loves to call them the walking wounded or the walking dead or the zombies but you know what it was those very zombies that were responsible for all the major discoveries in Canadian history. In fact, in American history, because American Barrick Resources Corporation was a Vancouver listed company when they hit the gold strike discovery for uh, in Carlin Trenton, Nevada. So that speculation, if you will, actually, in addition to fueling the market, it puts money into the pockets of these companies that need to further develop their projects. If you get a good team of guys running the company, a volume that comes in from retail interest, at least when I was in corporate finance, you had to turn that into financing. The worst thing that can happen is you have a company that goes from these egregiously depressed areas of one and two and four million dollars of market cap, and it goes from one, four, three million of market cap to 20 or 30 million of market cap, and suddenly the run's over and you look around and they still only got 195000 bucks on the treasury. Well, if that happens with any of the guys on my watch, the management should be fired because I would much prefer to have the market, instead of going to a $30 million cap, go to a $15 million cap and have 2 to 3 or $4 million put in the till because that's what you have to do to make sure you can fulfill the obligations on the projects. 
You've stated that with a potential economic intercept, things could get, and I'm quoting, very interesting with stakeholder in play. You could potentially be trading at the dollar level very soon. And how would that translate into further developing the Ballarat project? I'm not privy to a lot of the inner discussions because that's management's job. I'm a consultant to the board of directors of Stakeholder Gold. So I give them my experience in corporate finance from a corporate finance perspective. I look at what the budget would be pre-diamond drilling on the stakeholder project. And again, I keep stressing this every time I'm asked about it. Sean Ryan's Ground Truth Aspirations. The cost of doing work to get you to the point where you've earned the right to order a diamond drill in is like a fraction of what it was five, six years ago. When we're for 350000 bucks, we're going to have two major zones on Ballarat explored. That includes soil, GT probe. We're going to do some geophysics as well. And if everything pans out, we'll have 100 meter deep rabbles, probably 15 or 20 of them completed by the third, fourth week of June. So we'll be in a position to report to our shareholder base what we've found and how we've interpreted it and how we've analyzed it. And, you know, with the good graces of God, we'll be able to tell everybody that we've ordered a diamond drill rig to come in and try and define the structure. Main thing for this project is we have to identify structure first, and you'll worry about grade and width and intercept length second. It is the structure of these things that will carry the economic significance, not individual drill holes. You're looking for structure aside from any alluvial plays in the area. Yeah, we want to see that this is along the same lines of what Kamenak's got. And I don't mean to keep dovetailing back to Kamenak and Goldcorp, but, you know, they're going to have the leach pads in place. We're 8 to 9, 10 kilometers to the north. You know, I'm not a mining engineer, but we really are just an earth-moving exercise right now. If we find enough of it, okay, yes, sir, sure, we could put a, a leach pad in there, but, you know, you find enough of it, you got your, your joint venture partner right down the road. So when you're in a remote area like the Yukon, you've pretty much got to have two to three million ounces to justify the cost of creating and building for the build-out, the infrastructure build-out. Now that Gold Corp's in there, you know you've got the infrastructure build-out happening. You know that power is the next thing to come. So I really am optimistic. Again, when you're in an exploration program in this part of the world, anywhere for that matter, there's two ladies that hold your future in their hands. And the first lady is Mother Nature, and the second lady is Lady Luck. So we need luck. Every explorationist needs a, a large degree of luck, a large dull, large serving of luck, of good fortune, and you need Mother Nature to cooperate. And, you know, everything that I get from Sean and his team over at Ground Truth, and he's said this, I believe, in, on your, uh, to a number of people on the radio show, he's, he said point blank, it's not a question of whether we're going to have a discovery on Ballarat. It's a question of how big it's going to be. That's my level of excitement moving forward. The trading pattern on stakeholder, naturally, we were delighted to see it have a 80% pop last week to get it back up over the 50 level. Even after a 80% move, the market cap for stakeholder is still only $8.8 million. If I compare that to West Red Lake, which is, again, not any different from stakeholder in that it's a grassroots exploration program. Yes, it's in a, a certainly a, a blue chip neighborhood in the Red Lake camp. But if you look at the market cap, of West Red Lake, it's at a 21.3 million market cap. In fact, with the warrants outstanding, they've got about 100 million shares outstanding. So it's actually at about a $30 million market cap right now. And that compares to stakeholder at 8.8. I'd say stakeholders got some lift left in it. I'm not going to ask you to verify it or not, but there's a fairly good likelihood if we see the results of the core shack that we're all hoping for that stakeholder may be a takeout candidate down the road for Gold Corp. Crazier things have happened that junior miners that are close to an existing mining operation get taken out. But I caution all of your listeners, I've been doing this for almost 40 years now, and we got a long way to go before we qualify 
for a takeout. There'll be a lot of drilling and there'll be a lot of exploration work. There'll be a lot of metallurgy and a lot of steps to take before that. But if you look at the, at the classic chart of a discovery of a mining company, actually, the most exciting period of time historically is the exploration phase when you hit the major discovery and the next three to six to nine months are spent defining it. And I'll give you a great example of what happened. In 1962, Kid Creek was discovered in Timmins, Ontario. The way you played that was through the Texas Gulf Sulphur Warrants. And they were $4 a share when drilling began, $4 per warrant when the drilling began. And by the time the last drill hole defined the enormity of the Kid Creek deposit, and actually it didn't because all it did is it defined the enormity of the initial open pit, which was absolutely staggeringly rich and big. The warrants had gotten to 168 bucks per warrant from four. And then what you see is once it's defined, then they go through the development and mine building stage. And by the time the first ore was processed at Kid Creek, which was one and a half years later, the warrants were all, all the way back to 28 bucks. So for stakeholder, the most exciting period of time will probably be the period of time that they take to define the ore body in the event that there's an ore body there. Well, Michael, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm very excited about recent developments in the Yukon. I look forward to getting up there in, in about two months and taking a look for myself. Thanks for joining us today on the program, Michael. Thank you for having me, Els. I've been speaking with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Hi, and welcome to Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. A titan of American auto racing is Al Unser Sr. His accomplishments speak for themselves. He's won the Indy 500 four times. He's won 39 career IndyCar races and is a three-time series champion. Also of note, the Unser family is the only one to have three different members win the Indianapolis 500. And if you count their years of championship racing, it's incredible. The Unser family has been driving, fixing, building, and winning in motorsports since at least the middle of the last century. I can think of no other sports entity that has had a longer legacy than the Unser family. I had the good fortune to talk to Al Unser Sr. at the Unser Racing Museum in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's a beautiful, sunny afternoon. We're here at the Unser Racing Museum on Montano Boulevard in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this is an incredible place. And I'm with an incredible person. This is Al Unser Sr., Al, thanks for having us in, and I'm going to start with a typical question, then we'll try and get into some that are not as typical. My first question is, what's your first recollection of motor racing? Was it your brothers, friends, uh, your dad? My dad, he was raising us in the automobile business in the garage. It was all automatic for us to start realizing that he was a race car driver at one time at Pike's Peak. So that is what made us motivated us to start wanting to drive race cars and my folks were for it daddy and mom just said if you want to do it we'll try to help you as much as we can on knowledge they didn't have any money people say well it didn't cost that much in those days well it did just the figure of money was different then it was hard they helped us as much as they could and we just loved the sport and went after it. So where did you first drive a motor car and uh, who were you with? What was it like that first non-racing? What was that first driving experience? 
Well, it was out on the West Mesa of Albuquerque, where the freeways are now and the homes are built. That's where we used to run. Gosh, I can remember the house and the shop on Route 66 out there. There wasn't anything around us, and there really wasn't. So we kind of had the, my brothers would just pull them in, and they were the ones that started it all, of wanting to go out, and we'd think we could build a race course. And it was just two corners, and we just take the like the Model A. Well, I run the thing for probably, I don't know, a couple of months, how the Model A came about. I was probably about eight years old, nine years old, and I went to my father, and I says, Daddy, can I have that Model A out there? Pickup. And he looked at me, and he says, you get that Model A running, and you can have it. And I says, really? Well, you know eight-year-old kid, nine-year-old kid, come on, you don't know much about anything, you know. So I went to work on it, and uh, it took me, and I couldn't have any help from my brothers. He did say that. He says, you can't have any help from your brothers, nor from the mechanics in the shop. You have to do it. Well, that's okay with me. An eight-year-old kid knows everything. You know, he just, I just went to work on it. And I finally got it running. I mean, it took me quite a while. I mean, it wasn't an easy chore. Well, I finally got it running, and off I went. Man, I was in heaven. I'd run all up and down the dirt roads back there. And, and there was one corner, and I thought I could run around there wide open. Well, if you've ever driven a Model A, they steer very hard. They're, they're not easy. It's not like power steering in today's cars. And anyway, I, myself and a friend of mine, got it. I got it sideways, and it caught and rolled it. And I'm upside down, and we get out. Neither one of us was hurt. Of course, we wasn't probably going 15 mile an hour, 20 mile an hour. So I go in, and I get my brothers. I says, come and help me. I wrecked my Model A. Oh, my gosh. What, what did your brothers say to that? We're told not to help you. They finally came out, and we rolled the Model A back over on its wheels. And it really didn't hurt it. I lost all my gas, you know, and all that. But that hurt my feelings. But I sit there, and I says, now, don't tell Daddy and Mom. Oh, we won't. When my dad and mom got back from downtown, it wasn't 15 minutes. Al, I walked in and said, yes, sir. What are you doing wrecking the Model A? Getting it upside down, yes, huh? Yes, sir. What did I tell you about that? You know, he just said, well, don't do it again. I'm glad you're okay. And he just brushed it off. He says, don't let it happen again, you know. And that's the way my folks were, you know. As long as I think we were okay and we learned something about what we did wrong, they were okay with it. They were such terrific parents because of that. You know, they just turned us loose. Later on, you know, we had, or before that, we had donkeys. I mean, we used to go riding everywhere out there. And I mean, we went everywhere on those donkeys. And they, my brothers used to strap me on it because I wasn't very big. And I'd fall off and the donkey just dragged me through the cactus. And they just thought, that and my brothers thought that was the neatest thing. It got to be a, a, a laughing deal, I guess, with them because every time they wanted to go ride the donkeys, I said I wanted to go too. Well, I had my own donkey, and they said, Well, you know, we're gonna strap you on it. If you fall off, we're not gonna stop. Well, I don't care. You know, I was for it, and that's just the way I was brought up, and, they, and that's just the way. 
they brought me up, you know, and, and it, was a, it was a good life. I don't regret any of it. Every once in a while, I'll take a, a vehicle and go out, try to go out through there. There's fences you can't go through. There's, you can, I can't do it today. So it's hard for anybody to realize the way the four boys were raised out there, you know. My folks... We had certain guidelines, but out of that, we could do what we wanted. And my folks didn't didn't really, as long as we didn't lie and cheat and, and do things like that, they let us do what we wanted. So where was your first racing experience? Were you the driver? Was it with your brothers? There was five years difference between myself and Bobby. Six years difference between Jerry and Louie and myself. So I was the one that was in their way you know a younger brother you know they as i said earlier you know they used to tell me if if you're going to come with us if you want to come with us we're going to kick your tail you know if you just behave in any way and so there was never a doubt of of trying to outdo them because i couldn't because there was five six years difference in our ages so uh the first race, I used to watch Bobby and Louie and Jerry out at what they called Cormant Speedway on Rio Grande. They started down there and then they went to Speedway Park out on the east side, clear against the mountains over there on Eubank. Then that's where I started was at Speedway Park on Eubank. And by that time, my brothers were gone. Jerry was in Hawaii racing. Louie was in California working on motors and racing himself, sprint cars, and Bobby was doing the same thing. So when I started racing out here in 57, you know, that's all that was out there was Speedway Park. There weren't any houses around it. It was out to the other side of the base, and there wasn't anything there but uh, us out there trying to race. And uh, it, it was it was really fun. It was educational. You know, I learned a lot, and uh, that's what taught me. And then the... Uh, the drivers in town didn't like a little kid out running them, so they started ganging up on me and blocking me and and spinning me out. So my dad got mad and he said, "Bobby, I'm going to buy you a car, and you and Al will be running against them." So we thought that was a heck of an idea. Well, between Bobby and I, we just kicked their tail out there. We really did. And the the guy that was most honorable towards helping me out there was a guy named Buddy Taylor. That Buddy Taylor, he says, no more picking on Al. And by that time, things were kind of turning and it was with Bobby and I out there, we ganged up on everybody else. It was a different days in those days because you would come into the pits after a race and you had to have pretty big pit men because the fight would start. They didn't like or we didn't like. So we started recruiting big men. We'd just go out there and say, you guys want to fight? Let's have at it. Because that's, that's the way we were raised, say, fairly and honestly. And, and today that just doesn't happen. Now, you know, you do something like that today and you're talking to an attorney instead of a guy's friend or his father's mother, you know. So it, it's different today. There is a strong perseverance streak in the answers. I think a lot of parents out there would like to know, what did your folks teach you? Now, there were tough times, like when your Uncle Joe and your brother Jerry, they were the first answers to attempt Indy. Both were fatally injured. What did your parents instill in you to 
give you guys the perseverance to continue to grow and become champions? My folks, that's what's the good part about our folks. They just, daddy and mom, were, were when Jerry got injured and killed at Indianapolis, they had a little meeting with us and we sat down and they said Jerry was doing what he loved. He was racing, enjoying life, and we want you to continue. You boys continue, Louie, Bobby, and myself. If that's what you want, we will not discourage you in any way about auto racing. We love the sport. That's still our life, our business, and working on cars. So you guys do what you want to do. And we just continued. We honored Jerry as a brother that loved what he was doing. And we hated to lose him. But, you know, things like that happen. If you lose one of your relatives or your son or your daughter out on the highway, do you quit driving? No. So we didn't quit racing. We just carried it on and, and wanted to make Jerry's life realize that we're paying him back for every time we won a race, you know, that they took one of our brothers. Now, competing for seats with racing teams had to be hard. Aside from winning races, how did you pitch yourself into a seat on, on a racing team? And, and when, what time in your life did that start? I can tell you that in 1957, when my dad, we put the super modified, they were called then together. And we went out to Speedway Park. I won everything that night. I set fast time. I mean, I was a rookie. I won the feature. I won all the races that I they entered me in. And the prize money, you know how much it was? $7. My dad said, he was really neat. He says, you go up to the pay window because you did it. So I go up there, you know, I'm thinking, man, this is going to be pretty, pretty good. They handed me $7, and I brought it back to my dad, and I handed it to him. I says, here's, here's what we won, Dad. Yeah, good, okay. He just put it in his pocket, never said a word, never complained about being, that's all we won. I mean, he was, he was such a neat father because he, I mean, he paid more than fuel, and fuel in those days, gasoline was only, what, 25 cents a gallon between the fuel and the pit passes, I mean, it was way more than $7. So just think of the drivers that run behind me. I mean, they didn't win enough to, to even, they didn't deduct me because I was young, I guarantee you, because my father wouldn't let that happen. You know, so it was, it's a different story. And then you go through all those days and then you finally get to Indianapolis and, and start running, say, sprint cars and stuff, USAC cars. And all of a sudden, you know, you do pretty good one night and, and you know, you get three or $400. I mean, it's just remarkable. And one time I went to Phoenix with my Super Modified. We didn't win the race. We run third or something like that. And I didn't make enough prize money to pay my fuel bill going down and coming back and buying alcohol for the race car and tires. And I had to come back and luckily I had an American Express card and I was able to buy gas. Otherwise I wouldn't have made it back. And I thought I did pretty good that weekend at Manzanita Park with the Super Modified. But in those days, they just didn't pay that kind of money. The crowds wasn't there, I guess. I don't know. I went the same way at Pikes Peak. I went up there and crashed one year, and that was in 62. 
1963, and when I left, I didn't have any money in time. I paid my motel bill, my tire bill, my eating and all that. I didn't have any money. I was broke. I left Colorado Springs with 50 cents to my name and three kids. And I'll tell you what, it it is it was too much, you know, but I made it back because I had a credit card, thank goodness. And I got back and opened up my business again and, and went broke there a couple of times. I mean, it, it, life is life's a funny deal sometimes. Very stupid too, you know, because I was 19, 18 years old running a business and going out and racing. And I mean, I... I didn't know what was going on. What was the transition to IndyCars like? Well, you know, Bobby and my brother was already, Jerry was already at Indianapolis and got killed. And then uh, Bobby went, and he was having a hard time crashing. He, bad luck, I guess. I, I, I don't know why. And But to make the transition from super modifieds and sprint cars and midgets and go to the speedway cars... You know, I went to Phoenix one time on the mile dirt track and run an offie down there uh, for a USAC show. And I thought I was in another world, and I really was because I'd never gone that fast down the long straightaway. The mile racetracks, you really run fast down the straightaway. So things like that you do and you learn your mistakes and you try to keep getting rides I didn't have the money to have one of those cars or to go to Indianapolis. And I finally, you know, went to Pikes Peak and won Pikes Peak. And while I was up there before the race that I won up there in 64, a guy named Frank Arciero was running a sports car up there for Bobby out of car. And I asked Frank for a ride after, you know, going to SCCA races. And Frank looked at me and he says, I only hire winners. He says, have you ever won a race? He's talking about big races, you know, Pikes Peak or a championship IndyCar race or something. I says, no, sir, I, I, I haven't. He says, you have to first start winning before I'll hire you. So I said, okay, kind of went my own way. And I happened to win Pikes Peak that year in 64. The next day, boy, I walked up to him and I said, I'm a winner now. Can I have a ride? He says, I'll tell you tomorrow. He was a Italian accent. He says, I'll give you an answer tomorrow. I said, okay. So the next day, we were still up at Pikes Peak, and I went to him. I says, well, Mr. RCO, what do you, what do you say? He says, I'll, I'll give you a chance. So that's how it started right there. And then later years, he's the one that took me to Indianapolis from my rookie year in 65. He wanted to go back there again. He was back there one other year with a Maserati engine and didn't make the race. So he says, I still want to make the race, you know, with a Maserati engine. So he put a, we put a car together with a Maserati engine. Well, the Maserati engine didn't have any horsepower. That's why it wouldn't, you know, and so... I didn't make the race that with that car, and I'm sitting on the wall or in the garage area. 
I'm sitting there with my head between my legs because I thought I was through. And in those days, if you missed the race at Indianapolis for not qualifying fast enough, the car owners never did want you because they didn't figure you had the talent, say. So, boy, I was wiped out. And A.J. Foyt walks in my garage and he says, uh, I got another car. And he says, uh, if you'd like to run my backup car, come over to my garage, which was right across the hallway from where I was. Well, when he walked out the door, I was glued to his back, I guarantee you. I mean, he didn't have to, you know, walked in there and he says, okay, he says, let's go out and run. And I went out and in the Lola, rear engine Lola race car, run 10 laps and I came in. He, we went back to his garage and we're sitting there and he walks up to me and he says, we're going to go back out to qualify. I thought he was kidding. I mean, I was... I was shook. I'll never forget, he got up and walked out. He says, come on out, we're taking the car out now. And I, from that garage area to getting out to the, to the racetrack, I don't still remember today because I was so shook. I mean, you just can't imagine. I only had 10 laps in the car and he wanted to qualify the car, you know. And it was the last day of qualifying, so it was do or die deal. So I had to go out and went out he told me what to do and i listened to him and did what he told me to do and we made the race i started 32nd but the last day of qualifying didn't make any difference and i ended up that weekend and running ninth ninth position and that seemed to open my career up then the next year nice things started happening i run for team lotus and uh, then from there, you, you know, it just kept going up. And uh, so in 70, I, you know, I, I run second there in 67 and, and stuff. So they, they finally won the race in 70. Yeah, you know, you have to remember that when I was coming up, I looked at drivers that I honored. I, they were my idols. Uh, Foyt, Herdebees, McElreath, I mean, Parnelli Jones. I mean, I can just keep running off names that were my idols. I mean, I could look at them and say, gee, if I could just be like them, you know, and all of a sudden you get the right breaks and you're running against them. You think, man, what are, you know, this is absolutely beautiful, you know, and then you're starting to outrun them. That's when things really start changing. I think you find out they're just as human as you are. They're able to be outrun just like you are. It was a treat to be able to run with them and then start outrunning them. And you say, you sit back and you say, gee, where's I'm a lucky person. Your last win at Indy was as a fill-in driver for Penske when Angaius crashed and they wouldn't release him from the hospital. You then won the ride back at Penske. Well, somewhat. In other words, when, when that happened, Danny Angaius was not released from the hospital for because of a concussion. Then I got in the car and ended up winning the race, qualified the second weekend and stuff. And, and it was a year-old car and a year-old engine. And But 
When you run for Penske, you know that you get the very finest that there is. When he called me and asked me if I would run for him with a year-old car, year-old engine, and all that, I said yes right away. And I turned down probably five, six dry teams before that because I didn't think they had the capability of winning. I'd already won the race three times, you know, so you learn to, to understand what goes on. And so when Penske called me, I said yes right away. And it ended up being, you know, one of those golden days, you know, of being able to win the race. And, and uh, you know, and then later Rick Mears got hurt. And then I did replace Rick then in the team. And we won the championship. And, and, uh, and it was just a golden time in, in my life. You know, they say, well, which is your most famous race? And there's so many, but your last win is the one you, you remember. The crazy life of a professional race driver. What were the craziest times or the weirdest times you can remember? Oh, I don't want to get into that. I mean, but you know, anytime you crash, you know, I, we all crashed. And you're just sometimes very lucky to be able to come out of them. A lot of drivers didn't. They had, injured and killed or laid up for life. Joe Leonard crashed in Ontario, California and he couldn't come back to racing. And there's a lot of drivers that I could name, you know, Jim Herderby's crashed at Milwaukee, caught on fire and burned real bad, you know, but he still continued racing, but he wasn't near as competitive as he was at one time. You thank goodness, uh, thank the Lord for taking you through all this and able to, to get out of the cars. I crashed at Texas World Speedway one time and there's still two weeks of my life I don't remember. I mean, I had a very severe concussion. That was in 1978, in fact, and I don't even remember to this day. Things like that happen in your life, but fortunately I was one of the drivers that was lucky enough to come out of it, you know, and I'm still here today. Your son, Al Unser Jr., has been an incredible competitor. And I can only imagine how proud you were when he won the Indy 500, not once, but twice. I think it was he, little Al, that I used to watch in the 70s run a go-kart full wide open at a go-kart track up here on West Central Avenue, Route 66 to the rest of the world. That was back in the 70s, but he was amazingly fast. And I say that as a young go-kart racer myself. I never saw anyone faster in a car. Was that him? That was him. No, that's how I started him was at the go-kart track on, they called it Triple T Cartway out on West Central, just past 98th Street. 1994 was definitely his year. Incredible driver. Never forget. I even had a piece of his crashed Detroit car that I kept in my garage for years. But uh, what an amazing driver little Al was. You, your brother Bobby, and your son Al Jr. have cemented a place in racing history. But the answer line of drivers doesn't end there. Bobby's son Robbie is a nine-time Pikes Peak winner. And I think that ties the old man on the mountain, uh, the old man of the mountain. And he's an Indy Race League driver, uh, drift racing, Formula D. He's done a lot. Uh, his sister, Jerry, another go-fast go-kart driver, and I think she's the first female Unser to win at Pikes Peak. Johnny Unser, your nephew, Jerry's son, finished 18th at Indy. He's a driver coach and Indy official. Then you've got Jason Tanner, your grandson. He's following the tradition in sprint cars all in the states around, in states around the Southwest. Al Unser 3, a.k.a. Just Al, is Rookie of the Year in the Skip Barber Series. 
He's regularly finishing in the top positions in pro racing, in the pro racing series. What's the future of Unser race drivers? Well, you know, the the grandkids, most of them are, that came along, thought that they should automatically win because their name was Unser. Well, it didn't take long for them to understand. They, they, they say, why can't I win like you guys did? And I tell them, well, you got to first want to and work at it. You're not working at it. You, you think it's going to happen, and it doesn't. As I used to tell Al Jr., I'd say, you know, you put your pants on just like everybody else. The day that you think you put them on better or differently is the day you're going to fail. We're all the same humans, and you have to create yourself and work hard to become good at what you're doing. And he always took it like that, and the grandkids didn't seem to want that. You know, a couple of them did. Robbie did to a certain extent. Now the third, Al's boy, we thought he had a ride this year. They thought they had a deal going, and it didn't work out. So he still wants to run, yeah. Well, he seems to have the right perseverance attitude, so if he stays with it and keeps working at it, he's bound to be a, another Unser champion. That's right. No, that's good. Talk about fast company. A.J. Foyt, Rick Mears, Bobby Unser, Johnny Rutherford, M.O. Fittipaldi, Mario Andretti. Who was the best driver, I should say, the hardest to beat? Uh, after you, of course. I'm sure glad you added that because, <laughs> you know, that's, it, that's a hard thing you're asking because what happens is every week is a different race at a different place. If you were racing at one time every week, then you could sit here and say, well, this guy or that guy is the best that there is. But when you take clear across the United States... You know, and and try to pick out the very best, it's hard. Every person you just mentioned, they are good. At a given time, they're the best. I mean, Bobby, Mario, Foyt, Parnelli Jones, Jim Herdebees, who should have won the Speedway, Jim McElreath, who should have won it, Lloyd Ruby. I can just name you names that on the given day, those guys were the best that there was. So to sit here and say this guy or that guy, I can't. I got to say all of them. And I mean all of them, regardless of whether you like them or you don't like them. At that given day, you couldn't outrun him. So... He was the best. That has to be the best answer to that question ever. What keeps you busy these days besides this fantastic museum? Well, Sue and I have a place up in Chama, New Mexico, and it's up in the mountains. And, you know, I love the mountains, and and, uh, there's hunting, fishing. I don't do any of that anymore, but at one time I did. I just love going up there and spending time up there. And then the museum here just keeps us going, and it really does, you know, We've got a good manager here now, Janet. We thank the world of and She does a terrific job for us. So we're able to kind of get away and relax. And Sue and I enjoy. I got snowmobiles. I got ATVs, you know, and I go up in the mountains and get away from it all. And it, it's just wonderful. Do you have any advice for any young people who would like to be race drivers? You know, I would say to the younger generation, if you want to become a race car driver, it's not just saying that you're going to become one. you got to work at it. You have to concentrate. You have to learn what things are about. 
and the knowledge that you can learn by going and watching car racing. Maybe you haven't started driving yet, but at least watching and understanding and seeing what the guys are doing out there, the people, men and women, are doing, I think is very, very good and very important. So if you want to become a car racer, work at it. Do it. There's only one place that you want to be, and that's number one. And to get number one is very hard. It's very difficult. So I say to you, get it, hold on, and try to understand what you're doing. And if we can help you in any way at the Ansa Racing Museum, we'll try to help you as much as we can. Whether you're a fan of IndyCar racing or not, I think you've got something you can take away from this interview with Al Unser Sr. I encourage everyone to come see this beautiful Museum in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Car Kicks is about automotive history, and most of you know the names Al Unser, Bobby Unser, and Little Al, but we wanted you to know the Unser's history reaches back farther and much deeper than most people will ever get to know. A worthwhile addition to any trip to the Southwest United States would be to the Unser Racing Museum in Albuquerque. You can catch them online at unserracingmuseum.com. That's all for this episode. Join us next time on Car Kicks. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 